Hey everyone, my name is Jonathan Brooke and this is Eyes Only. In 1962, a pilot took some photos, ones that would gain a lot of attention. He was flying over the Nevada desert at 354,000 feet, nearly the edge of space, when the photos were taken. It was a routine flight for NASA, and the nature of these flights were not clandestine at the time. NASA would often release these photos to the public. When they released the photos taken on that particular trip, the media went wild. In the bottom corner of one of them was a dark blur. People were quick to identify it as a UFO. They would latch on to the story, and ufologists began working out theories as to why aliens would be visiting the Nevada desert. The location the photo was snapped is not too far away from a place that is formerly called Groom Lake. It's well known by a different name, Area 51. This would end up being an important part of the story. The truth wouldn't come out until 2007. What is captured in that photo is a top-secret CIA spy plane called the A-12, yet better known as the Oxcart. It is a supersonic jet that can travel at 2,300 miles an hour, three times the speed of sound. It was moving so fast that day that even NASA's high-quality cameras couldn't capture more than just a blur. The hype around the extraterrestrial or anything that comes along with UFO sightings only served the CIA's benefit. At the time, the Oxcart's existence was need-to-know only, and very, very few people needed to know. It would call Area 51 its home, and it's just one piece in the puzzle that is the nation's most secretive base, at least of the ones that we know of. The sole purpose of the Oxcart was to fly as fast as a speeding bullet, so fast nothing could ever catch it. It would fly anywhere on Earth with impunity, because no targeting system could lock onto it. The advanced camera system that it deployed gave the CIA eyes directly over even the most protected airspace in the world. The naked eye would catch it though, and people would see things they couldn't explain. Its fully titanium body would shine bright in the desert sun, and people would catch glimpses of it as it flew over the United States. Most of its flights would happen at dusk. At that height, the sun would still be shining bright and would make it appear otherworldly to anyone that caught a glimpse of it. What they saw would mystify them because most people didn't think humans were capable of building something that could fly as fast and as high as the oxcart could. The U.S. government was willing to do almost anything to ensure people kept believing that. During the 1960s, commercial airline pilots would report seeing UFOs to the FAA. If their flight course had come anywhere near Area 51, the CIA would be notified. When the commercial flight landed at its destination, FBI agents would sometimes be waiting. Before the passengers could depart their flight, they would be forced to sign inadvertent non-disclosure agreements, legally binding them to keep secret anything that they had seen on the flight. Author Annie Jacobson describes these kind of interceptions in her book Area 51, an uncensored history of America's top secret military base. The lengths that were taken to keep these programs secret are sometimes unnerving, and altogether rather impressive. These efforts are part of a long legacy in U.S. history to keep operations clandestine. 
To the pilots who flew these missions, that part of their job was not lost on them. There was a story from early on in Air Force history that shows the lengths people would take. It happened in the late 1940s, when jet propulsion was just as cutting edge for the time as going supersonic would be in the 1960s. A pilot without enough clearance would see something he couldn't understand. He would try to get a closer look, and when he did, what he saw would leave him more than unsettled. Over the Mojave Desert in California, a 938 Lightning pilot noticed a strange aircraft in the distance. It was a normal looking plane, but there was something different about it. It had a trail of smoke coming out from behind it. What was even more shocking was that it was completely propellerless. Something unheard of in aviation at that time. The pilot flew close, violating his mission to get a closer look. He wanted to know what kind of secret planes the government was keeping from him. Rumors had been circulating around local pilot bars of a new kind of plane. He stared into the cockpit of the craft. What he saw shook him to his core. Staring back at him was the face of a gorilla. He couldn't believe his eyes. There's no way the Air Force had trained apes to fly planes, was there? Ripping away from the unsettling sight, he landed and went straight to the local bar and ordered a drink. He told his local pilot friends what he had seen. Pretty soon, other pilots were flying in close and catching glimpses of these gorillas flying planes. There's an obvious answer to what was happening. Behind the controls of these new classified planes were men wearing professionally made Hollywood gorilla masks. The sole purpose, to make any onlooker's story as unbelievable as possible. It all started with a pilot by the name of Jack Woolams. He had gotten tired of all the interest people had in an experimental aircraft. He decided to mess with them. Ordering a gorilla mask from a Hollywood production company, Jack would wear it every time he flew. Pretty soon his fellow pilots caught on and began ordering their own. What's interesting is it worked. At first it was the talk of the town, but pretty soon a military psychiatrist was brought in to speak to the pilots who had witnessed these strange sights. No one knows if the doctor knew what was happening. What we do know is that the doctor told the men that they had become disoriented by the altitude. The doctor made it clear that planes cannot fly without a propeller. And obviously if they could, gorillas would not be flying them. Pretty soon talk died down about the jet planes. No one wanted to be considered a fool, especially when they had careers to look after. Nowadays jet planes are a given. Yet at the time they were the future and an issue of national security. The roots of supersonic flight began there, and the secrecy would only increase, the stakes would only grow, and at the forefront of all of it were test pilots who would push these limits daily. This was only possible because they could operate in a microcosm in a place that didn't exist. That place was Area 51. A lot of what has gone on at Area 51 we still don't know about. What we do know is that it operated as an experimental aircraft testing site for decades, as well as a launching site for the most advanced aircraft in the world. The CAA, with the help of private companies such as Lockheed, developed at least six spy planes that continuously broke world records for speed, height, and invisibility to radar. 
The world at the time believed that Russia held the current airspeed record at 1,665.9 miles per hour. Yet the ox cart was easily breaking that record by more than a few hundred miles an hour routinely. The ox cart's pilots were breaking world records and they couldn't tell anyone about it. There was no fame or recognition that came with it. To be a test pilot on programs like this is a lot of responsibility. And when things go wrong, it can be deadly. The entire program would come under jeopardy in 1963 because of a malfunction. It would put a pilot by the name of Kenneth Collins in a very dangerous situation. Collins is flying the ox cart on a test flight over the skies of Utah when something goes wrong. His plane begins to rapidly lose speed. The altimeter starts unwinding and he begins losing altitude. Without warning, the plane pitches up and flips over. In a matter of seconds, it is locked in an inverted flat spin. He is immersed in thick cloud cover and can't tell which direction he is facing. He knows he has to eject, but cannot tell if he will be ejecting up or down. He isn't even sure if he's over mountains or over the desert. If he's over mountains, his time to impact will be much less. It is at this moment a thought creeps in. Perhaps his time is up. He had flown over 113 combat missions during the Korean War, often flying behind enemy lines with nothing but a camera for reconnaissance. He had seen dozens of skilled pilots die. There's a saying that he takes to heart. Fate is a hunter. When it comes for you, there is nothing you can do. That truth is evident in a painful story from his time during the Korean War. He was flying a combat mission alongside his best friend Chuck Parkerson. They had completed their mission in North Korea and were heading home. Not too far from making it back, Parkerson radioed Collins and told him that his engine had cut out. He couldn't get it started. To eject over North Korea meant capture and torture and a fate worse than death. In that moment, they're all each other have, and they knew it. Collins instructed his friend to fly out over the Yellow Sea. If he set his plane down in the ocean, Collins would mark the location and send help to get him. I'll fly with you, he told him. I'll be with you until you sit down. It was a good plan, yet there was a problem. Parkinson's canopy was jammed. It wouldn't open. He was trapped inside. They flew alongside each other over the sea, both men knowing the horrible truth. Parkinson is already dead. As his plane lost altitude, Collins flew low with him, watching his best friend slowly crash. He collided with the water, and Collins watched as the cabin flooded and his friend drowned. The memory shook Collins to this day and cemented his belief that when your time is up, it is up. As he prepared to eject from the ox cart, thoughts of that day raced through his head. He had never ejected from a plane before. Grabbing the ejection ring between his legs, he pushed his head firmly back against the headrest and pulled. The canopy blows off and is quickly ripped away. The propulsion system under his seat explodes and he shoots up and away from the plane. Separating himself from the seat, he feels the experience of free-falling. Eventually, a small parachute snaps open, slowing his descent. Floating there, he can see his plane crashing to Earth. The CIA's prized spy plane reduced to a smoldering pile of titanium on the desert floor. 
Making out his surroundings, a road becomes visible below. Thankfully, he had not ejected over the mountains. Suddenly, he feels a jolt. His parachute rips away, and he is falling. A second, much larger parachute opens, breaking his fall. The details of exactly what happens when he ejects were not fully given. His parachute system consisted of a smaller one to slow him until he reached 1,500 feet, before a second, much larger one would be deployed to bring him safely to Earth. No one bothered to tell him this, though. Due to the secrecy protocol, he had not radioed before he bailed out. He wondered how long it would take for anyone to find him. His landing was somewhere in the western part of Utah, nothing for miles around. The isolation was the point, yet not too great when you crash land. It wasn't long before the dust cloud of an incoming vehicle could be seen in the distance. It was a pickup truck. When it came into view, Collins could see three men inside. In the bed of the truck was the canopy of his airplane. Local ranchers had seen his crash. They told him they knew where his plane was, and they could take him to it. This was a major problem. No civilian had ever laid eyes on the ox cart. Collins had strict orders to keep it that way, so he told them a lie. The official story, as written by Collins in that moment, was that his plane was an F-105 fighter jet and had crashed with a nuclear weapon on board. Choosing a broken arrow incident as his cover story was intelligent yet also shows how secretive these programs were. Few things are worse than a lost nuclear weapon, yet that was better than them finding out about the ox cart. The men's expressions changed. The tension could be cut with a knife as visible fear came over their faces. He got in the truck. They agreed to take him to a phone before they got as far away as they could. The ranchers dropped him off at a patrol station. He watched as they sped off. Reaching into the pocket of his jacket, he pulled out a dime and a folded piece of paper with a phone number written on it. Standard issue for a test pilot. Dropping the dime into the payphone, he made that call that you never want to have to make. In the end, he was alive, and he had kept the program's secrecy secure. His work was over, but now the work would really begin. There had clearly been a malfunction out of his control. The investigation found that cloud vapor had formed ice in part of the plane that controls airspeed. It wasn't his fault, and he was lucky to be alive. A massive crew was mobilized to the crash site to begin the daunting project of finding and recovering every bolt, screw, and piece of metal from the wreckage. A task that seems unnecessary and over the top at first, but there's a reason, a very good reason. Titanium, which is what most of the plane was made from, was extremely hard for the U.S. to get. It was the only thing that worked to build these aircraft. There's one country that had an abundance of it. There was just a problem. It was Russia the very country these planes were being built to fight. Every scrap of that wreckage was valuable. The amount of it needed to continue an advanced airspeed superiority required an enormous effort. The CIA had a plan, though, on how to get the titanium that they needed. The details of that plan are rather ingenious. At the speed and height that the ox cart and its predecessor, the SR-71 Blackbird, flew, their bodies could heat up to temperatures exceeding a thousand degrees. At the time, the process of making titanium required access to a kind of iron ore called rutile. 
The United States was not sitting on any good deposits of it. The USSR, on the other hand, was the largest producer of it in the world. The CIA set up a series of shell companies located in the small eastern European countries that bordered Russia. Many of these countries had interesting trade deals with eastern bloc members of the USSR. They used locals to create legitimate business needs for iron ore and slowly bought small amounts legally from the Soviet Union. Over the course of years, each shell company brought in a small amount, but together they supplied enough titanium to build a fleet of supersonic spy planes, ones that would last the CIA for the entire Cold War. These planes could not have arrived at a better time. U.S. pilots over the skies of North Vietnam were being shot down at an alarming percentage of 9 to 1. The ones who survived found themselves in a place worse than hell. In 1966, a U.S. pilot named Jeremiah Denton, who was imprisoned by the North Vietnamese, was brought before television cameras to do a propaganda video. The footage was broadcast to the U.S. Sitting in front of the cameras, Denton being interviewed told the world a lie. He said he was getting adequate food, clothing, and medical care when he required it. His words said what his captors wanted them to, but he told the truth with his eyes. In the blinding light of the cameras, he blinked a message in Morse code. One word. Torture. The U.S. got the message loud and clear. It was the first verified intelligence that U.S. POWs were being tortured, and if the U.S. couldn't save them, they needed to at least stop so many of them from falling out of the sky. In Okinawa, Japan, the ox cart sat on the runway. It was going to fly right through the heart of North Vietnam, directly through the area where that 9 to 1 percentage was happening. It was going to give the U.S. exactly what it needed to save its soldiers from torture and death. The truth about whether it was really untouchable would soon be evident. My next episode is going to tell the story of exactly what the ox cart is capable of doing. Check out my next episode, and thanks for listening.